We are in our series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in chapter 2, we saw from the Apostle Paul how resurrection power, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is at work in us. And so, beginning of chapter 2, we were dead in our sins, but God has made us alive with Christ. That's how this power is at work in us, bringing spiritual, personal transformation. But last week we said that that power has, uh, also has horizontal communi- uh, implications in community. It affects the way we interact with one another, not only uh, how we interact with God, but how we also interact with one another. And um, we saw last week that Christ's death makes possible death of uh, peace and reconciliation, vertically, between God and humanity, and also horizontally between different people groups. And just before the verses where I'll pick up, I'll read an overlapping text from last week. Just before this, Paul has been talking about hostility, particularly between two people groups that were very prevalent in his first century context, Jew and Gentile. There's been this dividing wall of hostility, and the solution to that divide is the same solution that we need today to pray for, to work towards, to see any kind of peace and reconciliation experienced between any people groups, not just in the first century. Let's read again. Ephesians chapter 2, I'll start in verse 13. Listen carefully. These are God's words. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit." Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Those words continue to pop up in your eternal word, in Him, in Christ. Thank you for these reminders, Lord, that apart from Christ, we can do, we are nothing. But in Christ, we are everything. So unite us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus, as we consider these words shape us into this one new humanity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get started, just a quick poll, a quick show of hands. Do we have any racists in the room? Any racists? In, we have a few. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your brutal honesty. And, you know, looking, looking at a, a few of the, the faces that raise their hands, I know we, we are not, if you're new here uh, at GRC, don't worry, we are not a bunch of white nationalists. We're not a bunch of minority groups who are angrily trying to upend majority culture. But growth in Christ means that there's an honesty about who we are 
that if God's grace were not at work in us, there but for the grace of God go I. Meaning, if it weren't for God's preserving, restraining grace holding me back from my sinful self, those quick little thoughts that enter my mind when I disdain somebody else would grow into full-blown racism. Those little prejudicial thoughts and sometimes a, a, a small little innocent little word that I might share with a friend who has that same kind of mindset without the grace of God at work in me restraining that sin, I would be out of control. I would be destructive. I would do and say things that would be hostile and bring about alienation. And so our calling is to, instead of when we see racism and hostility and alienation around us or on the news, instead of thinking, why in the world do people act like that? How could they do that? Why would they say that? Instead, thinking to ourselves, or better yet, praying to the Lord, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on our land. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Rescue them from slavery to sin and self-destruction, just as you have rescued me from slavery to my own sin. And show me, Lord, how I battle the same temptations towards that kind of destructive pattern. Kill the same Kill the seeds of the same sin in me and somehow use me as an agent of reconciliation. That's how we need to increasingly think and act. So that is the background for our first point this morning, the racist in each of us. If I put that heading up to start, you'd think like, what is he talking about? But I hope you're tracking with me because some people think racism is sort of like an on-off switch. It's either on or it's off. You're either a racist or you're not, and I'm certainly not. That's what we tend to think, right? But I'm saying each of us displays, I'll use this imagery, each of us displays some strands of thought and behavior that when they collect together and start to be twisted together, become strong, become a destructive force. You might say, no, I, I respect all people equally. I live in Bergen County, New Jersey. My neighbors are such and such. I work with these people. I, 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 I don't look down on anyone because of their skin color or their uh, um, ethnic background. But maybe there's a strand or two in your life underneath the surface. Maybe sometimes when you look at another culture, you end up subconsciously, subtly disdaining it. You're frustrated by patterns that are very different that you don't get. You don't understand why people speak like that, act like that, think like that. So here's an example to be um, specific and concrete. When you look at another culture's foods and you're tempted to say, ew, why would anyone ever eat something like that? That's disgusting. You're disdaining. You're making a statement, whether you intend to or not. The foods that are typical in my culture are normal, and the foods that they eat are not normal. Nobody in their right mind would eat stuff, stuff like that. And that reflects a sense of superiority, subtle as it may be, unintended as the disdain may be. 
if you think the way they eat their food is primitive. It might be spaghetti, it might be steak, but the way that people group eats, it's rude, or you're tempted to laugh because it's so out of the norm, that's another little strand that on its own is not a big deal, but collected and twisted together becomes more powerful and can become destructive. If you roll your eyes that you need to take your shoes off when you enter a house, and by the way, when you come over to my house, the non-Asian in my household made that rule, okay? Um, but I, I'm, I'm in full support now. Uh, but when you, if you roll your eyes that you would have to do such a thing, you're disdaining. If you turn up your nose at the characteristic smells of an immigrant household, you're saying the way your house smells and other friends like you, their house smells are normal, but these are not normal. These are weird. What is that smell is the question you want answered. If you resort to generalities and stereotypes at the risk of uh, poking and offending, what are some stereotypes that we hear? Black people are always late. Asian people are passive. People from that country can't drive. You're putting yourself in the position of defining what is normal. Values and priorities that people should have, but they don't, and then they deserve your criticism. You're establishing a standard. And underneath all of this is self-righteousness. My way of thinking is right. Their way of thinking is wrong. My decision to act and prioritize this way is right. Their decisions are not. These are little strands that tie it all together become strong, and it can turn into racism. And by the way, if you're a member of a minority group, the same holds for you. You can very easily disdain another minority group or a majority culture in uh, thinking negatively about everything that happens in that group. Differences end up exposing the underneath-the-surface thoughts that are so intertwined with who we are, differences end up exposing our sense of how we think life should be, how people should behave. Uh, I grew up in Edison, New Jersey, in Middlesex County. If you drive around Edison these days, and better yet, if you walk into a, a, a school, you'll find that the vast, vast majority of kids in Edison, New Jersey are of uh, Chinese or Indian descent, children of immigrants. Uh, Steve Sage told me about this, a town just outside of Detroit, used to be largely Polish Catholic, but now has become the first U.S. city to have a city council comprised of majority Muslims, right outside Detroit. And uh, many of us know here in uh, Eastern Bergen County in Palisades Park, a former Italian Catholic enclave, now well over half of its residents are of Korean descent. In every situation, the shift has brought out the shift in population, the shift in makeup, the shift in culture, the shift in the language that you hear when you walk into Target or to deposit a check at the bank. Those shifts have brought out resentments and fears and stereotyping and outright bigotry. Bigotry that you can look up online and find in news reports in this town outside of Detroit and in Edison, New Jersey and in Pell Park. Depending on your background, are you tempted to think or even to say, they are changing our way of life? Little strands that when bound together become strong 
and make an impact, often destructively. What keeps those little strands from intertwining and growing into something destructive? What holds us back? What is the only antidote to racism when it is actually present and being enacted? Paul tells us here in Ephesians chapter 2. It involves claiming your identity not from race, not from ethnic background, not from language and culture, or from your parents or whatever stories, but instead finding your identity in the blood-bought reconciliation that God the Son, Jesus, has made possible through his death on the cross. That's what Paul tells us, and that leads secondly into the only path to reconciliation. Again, this is the part we're going to circle back to that we began to look at last Sunday, and we need to circle back to it because look around. (laughs) Pop on the news. Open a newspaper. Uh, Listen to the protests. It's all around us. Animosity, some of which has to do with race. Whether we're talking about animosity between God and men or whether we're talking about alienation, hostility between people groups, there's only one hope for reconciliation. The difference between bloody alienation, and it very often leads to blood, doesn't it, and violence, the difference between bloody alienation and blood-bought reconciliation and peace is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians 2 is telling us. When people aim hostility at another person's or another group's thinking, there's one common thread. There's one theme, again, almost always underneath the surface. I know myself to be right, and I know them to be wrong. That's self-righteousness. Jews are vehement in their declaration that all Palestinian Arabs are wrong. There's nothing that they're doing or saying that's good. Palestinian Arabs are vehement in their declaration that all Jews are wrong. There's a wall, literally, in so many places in uh, that land. Um, Hostility is getting passed down to generations. Outright hatred and violence, brokenness is spiraling out of control. Racism and bigotry end up strengthening these caricatures, these overconfident, broad-brush statements and conclusions about certain people groups. All such-and-such people are worthless criminals, they're animals, they're savages, they deserve to die, and that ends up justifying whatever reaction that particular people group wants to have toward them, including killing innocents. At root, it's self-righteousness. Self is right, the other person, race, kind, group is wrong. What's the gospel do? It doesn't just say, it's okay, we're, we'll, we'll just you know, smooth things over, we'll, we'll, we'll have this you know, unity party. No, the gospel starts, as it very often does, by giving us bad news. The gospel confronts us with the reality of who we are. It pulls the rug out from under every single one of us. That's why we started with the racist in each of us. A couple weeks ago during Bob's Grace Story, I quoted from Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down on all humanity to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. I underlined half the words in these two verses. Is there 
any wiggle room for you to insert yourself into Psalm 14, 2 to 3 and say, well, that's not applying to me. I'm not a racist. There's no room in that language. There is no one who does good, not even one. God looks down on all humanity to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, and the answer is no. Every single person looks like a racist to some extent, has these strands at work in our self-righteous, sinful hearts. That's where the gospel begins, pulling the rug out from under us, saying, here's the bad news. You're worse than you ever thought you were. You're not the exception to humanity's problems. The gospel stops the patting ourselves on the back little party that we tend to throw ourselves when we're busy criticizing everyone else for their flaws, God in his severe mercy says, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, you have the same fatal flaws in you. So what hope is there in the guilt of our own sin? But now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, contrasting to that bad news, here's the good news, You who once were far away have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. The difference between bloody alienation and blood-bought reconciliation is death and the unique historical death of the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's the only way we can have peace. Jesus looks at our lives and with the clarity of his perfect holiness, he says, your self-righteousness is actually, it's poorly labeled because it's no righteousness at all. It's really yourself thinking your righteousness. It's yourself deceiving yourself into thinking your righteousness. And before God, it's nothing. What does Jesus do? He could rightly judge us. He could bring condemnation upon us for presenting this flawed means, basis of acceptance before him as a holy judge, but what does he do instead? He goes to the cross, and he says, my people couldn't do it, but I have. I've lived the perfect life they, deserve, they, they should have lived in obedience to the Father, in humility and compassion and overwhelming love and forgiveness and peace as an agent of reconciliation. Jesus was absolutely righteous in every aspect of his life, and he went to his unjust death. Why? to provide us with a righteousness that he would credit to all who place their faith in him. You and I have no righteousness. We think we do. What we need is a Christ righteousness, a substitute who lived the life we should have lived, but we haven't, who died the death we deserve to die. And he offers us new life. That is how the cross removes hostility between God and humanity. We're guilty, but the Father, instead of pouring out wrath upon us, poured it out on His Son, and now we're clean. Blood has cleansed us. Blood has taken the place of our blood, and now we stand approved before the Father in heaven, and He sees the believer in Jesus just as He sees His perfect Son. It's as if Jesus is standing in our place when we're judged. And the Father perfectly approves. And then the believer in Jesus becomes a child of God. 
Ephesians chapter 1 began with this emphasis on the heart of salvation, and right in the middle of the salvation work of God is Him adopting us into His very family. In a few weeks, we'll get to Ephesians chapter 3, and we'll find these words, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. A Christian's Family identity is now drawn more and more from God the Father than it is from culture and nationality and race. Christ righteousness has replaced self-righteousness. And what that means is that racial or ethnic or nationalistic pride, the way I am, that leads to criticism of other people that are not like me, that has to die. It's exposed for the fraud that it really is. You have nothing to boast about. The rug has been pulled out from under you. Only when you receive peace with God through faith in Jesus can any other peace among different people groups be possible. And then, then the race differences, the cultural differences the ethnic differences, the skin color differences, they don't melt away. We, we don't just become, you know, sort of one mono-ethnic people under God. The differences that we do see and experience can be celebrated as God-designed distinctions in His creation. And because we have nothing to boast about, we don't look down on anyone else. We don't say, well, why do they do that? We can say, fascinating. I've never thought of doing that. I've never thought of eating that. <laughs> um, and we can celebrate. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, very beginning of his letter. He said, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see this design of God. It, it isn't, when, in Steve's little illustration here, it isn't that we are a uniquely sort of crooked, awkward, messed up bunch of people and that there are other churches that you should really try out because they're not as messed up. They're not as, you know, bungled up. No, we're all like that. Why? Because God has chosen the weak things and the foolish things and the despised things according to the world's standards the world's disdain, the world's strengthening strands of, well, that's not the way you're supposed to look, act, prioritize. God chose that which was not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And this is how it finishes. Therefore, as it is written, quoting Jeremiah, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. You have no self-righteousness. There's nothing to boast about except Jesus. Your Christ righteousness, if you trust in Him. That's what Jesus is at work doing, bringing about one new humanity. That's our last point. So, the gospel breaks us down it exposes us for who we really are. It shows that none of us has anything to boast about. And then God doesn't leave us in the dumps. He doesn't let us wallow in the sewer. He rebuilds us into something glorious. Here are the steps, starting in verse 19. 
First, foreigners and strangers become citizens. Some of you are naturalized citizens. And my guess is you remember that day. You might even have that date in your head, like your birthday. It was a special day because you formally now belong. You're a citizen. You have rights. You have a passport. But it doesn't stop there. Second half of verse 19, not only are you fellow citizens with God's people, you're members of His household, your family. You really belong now. And family isn't the end of it. We are, verses 20, 21, and 22, being built into a temple in which God lives by His Spirit. What privilege to house, if you will, the living God through His Spirit in His people. This new humanity, verse 15, that's what Paul says, Jesus' purpose was to create in Himself one new humanity. This new humanity is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the Word of God, the Bible. And Jesus is the cornerstone, the most critical piece of that foundation because the cornerstone sets the orientation of everything else that's built on top. If it's angled north and west, you know, if that, the whole building is going to be aimed in that direction. If it's off kilter, the whole building is going to tilt. If it's true and right, everything else, according to that orientation, can be true and right. And this is one of the reasons why uh, the Apostle John calls Jesus in the beginning of his gospel, the Word. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Why Word? Because Jesus, along with the apostles and prophets, is the living Word of God. These servants spoke what God wanted his people to know. What does Jesus do in his life? He spoke over his 30 plus years everything the Father wanted his people to know. His life was a clearest communication of God the Father's will to his people. Here I am. This is what I've come to do. So all of Scripture before Jesus and all of Scripture after points back to him as fulfillment. So there's no truth without going through Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life. And there's no people of God being built into a spiritual temple without Jesus as the cornerstone And there's no peace. There's no ceasing of hostility. There's no reversing of alienation without the God-man Jesus going to his cross, shedding blood. The bricks with which God is building his church, you and I, are not bonded together by some sort of mortar. They're bonded together by blood. It sounds crazy, unless you know this Jesus and realize the power of his death. That is the unity symbolized in the Lord's Supper. Bread and wine, body and blood. When we come to the supper, none of us is deserving. All who trust in Jesus, though, are welcomed. We're not deserving because of our merits. We're deserving and invited because of his merits. At the table, we're equals. We have nothing to boast about except our Lord and Savior. Bread and wine remind us of the cross, which breaks down every wall, every reason for hostility. Last thought, Grace Redeemer Church. This is a unique community. We're out here in Metro New York and Bergen County. We, by God's grace, are able to reflect something of the surrounding communities. We share life among lots of different kinds of people, different skin colors, different 
native languages, different um, family traditions over the holidays or for birthdays, and different family stories. The only explanation for this mix of peoples is that we have this unity that transcends all of our differences. We're united to Christ by faith. What makes us one is not that we have membership in one organization. We happen to show up in the same address on a Sunday morning at the same time. We go to the same Sunday school. None of that is the essence of what unites us as a very different collection of peoples. But at the same time, life in this kind of diverse community is not easy. It's just not. So um, why is that? Because of our sin, because we instinctively value self's culture over others' culture. Those are the strands of self-righteousness. It makes this difficult. So here's my homework that I'd ask you to consider. See the experience and the opportunity of living in a diverse community as a means for your spiritual growth, for you to look for and marvel at the unity in the diversity. The reason we're here as one family. Learn humility about your way of thinking. Ask other people why they think the way they do. Reach out to people who are not like you. Invite them over for a meal. And maybe strike a deal. You're going to cook your comfort food for them to try, and they're going to cook their comfort food for you to try. And realize going into that kind of meal that it is likely not going to be as affirming, as comfortable, as mutually relaxing as other meals might when you just invite people that you are so comfortable with because food may be strange. Family stories won't align. Parenting styles are going to perhaps... Um, But heads, accents and mannerisms might distract. But if you include conversation about your grace stories, and we all have one, if you ask about the story of how they have been united to Christ by faith, you just might taste this horizontal overflow of peace and unity and reconciliation because Jesus himself is our peace and he is at work creating one new humanity out of us. Let's pray. We have one identity that is worth boasting about, and it's all because of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for shedding your blood. Thank you for buying our peace, buying the end of hostility between God and us as sinners. And now use us as agents of reconciliation, sharing this good news, which sometimes involves bad news, pulling the rug out from under that we might and others might see increasingly that self needs to be replaced with Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.